Today is part two of our series on the state of the world right now. These episodes are a little different than our normal content, but hopefully I, I can give you guys a clear picture of the reality of our situation as Americans, as well as provide my recommendations for how we as believers should respond. Stick around to find out. Welcome to another episode of Millennial God, where we help believers navigate life, culture, and politics in America. All right, so like I mentioned, this is the second video in this series, so if you haven't already, make sure to go check out episode 23, where I talk about everything going on with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Also, make sure you hit subscribe because, uh, you know, whether you're on Spotify or YouTube or whichever platform you're listening on, go hit subscribe and hit the notification bell so you can get notified every time that we release a new episode. Okay, so today I'm going to cover a few things that I believe are much bigger threats than the Ukraine conflict. Unfortunately, war sells, so the conflict is dominating headlines right now, but I'm sure it's going to fade into the background at some point because as the West kind of forgets about it, media forget about it, that'll fade into the background. But today I'll talk about China instead of Russia, and I'll talk about some, uh, some very concerning things going on in the international economy. Uh, and then I'll kind of touch on what that means for America and how I think Christians should respond. All right, so let's start off with China. First of all, uh, I want you guys to understand that the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party, which you may hear me call the CCP, they don't think and act like American politicians, and they don't think and act like Russian leaders or either. Uh, if I asked any American on the street if we were at war with China, the vast majority of them would say that we aren't because we, uh, the United States, does not have military forces in direct conflict with Chinese forces. But before I go into their strategy, it's, it's important to understand that China views war much differently than Americans do. China believes that it is always at war with every other competitive nation. The CCP does not believe in peaceful relations or allies or anything like that. The Chinese government only believes that it is constantly at war and that war exists on a spectrum of activities. The United States believes this to a certain degree. For example, rather than sending troops to Ukraine, we sanctioned, or we sanctioned Russia. Uh, that is a form of economic warfare that the United States is using against the Russian Federation. So there are lots of ways that the United States conducts warfare, uh, especially in the special operations and covert, covert affairs uh, realm, but still a lot of that is done by people who are deliberately trained in warfare. China, on the other hand, considers everything to be a domain for war. So. When an American company wants to tap into the Chinese market, China will use the relationship to gain an advantage over the United States as a country, whether that be through data and information, or access to key personnel, or simply increase economic activity. No matter what it is, China views everything as a domain for war. So that means that they are much more willing to conduct cyber attacks or burn fields of food crops or steal intellectual data or disrupt oil refinement or influence social behavior, or, or honestly, just about anything that you can possibly imagine that affects the United States' ability to function and grow, the Chinese are actively using to dismantle the United States. They're also incredibly good at infiltrating American economic, educational, and political systems from within. One of the reasons that we've seen such a drastic shift inside of those three fields is because China or Chinese agents have effectively infiltrated and influenced them on China's behalf. I mean, 
Diane Feinstein, for example, had a Chinese agent working for her for 20 years. Uh, Representative Eric Caldwell was sleeping with a, a Chinese agent. Do you think that neither of those two agents possess the technical capabilities to compromise everything that those two members of Congress uh, were doing? Of course, uh, of course they did. Uh, I also like to use entertainment as an example. When was the last time you saw China be the adversary in a Hollywood-produced movie? China has systematically gained control of the American information and entertainment environments, and as a result, you'll see a continued increase in China being painted in a positive light and the United States being painted in a very negative light. Uh, they're also using information and environment to, or information and entertainment to kind of break down our social fabric. Uh, China is ensuring that movies get produced that disagree with common social norms of the United States. And that's been going on for a really long time. A good book I highly recommend everyone uh, should read is called Like War by Peter Singer. He does an awesome job of explaining how China and other actors are using uh, the information environment to do everything from spark insurgencies to dominating how people think based on information provided to them uh, by search engines. Also put a link in the description of a video that I recommend you guys watch. It's the highest ranking Russian defector who basically outlines how the Soviet Union and Russia planned on dismantling the United States. And it's pretty clear that the plan has been relatively successful, uh, especially now that China is conducting even more effective operations in the information environment uh, than what that guy describes that Russia was doing. The Chinese are doing it and they're doing it much more effectively. But ultimately what I'm getting at here is that China does not fight like we do. The United States is very conventionally minded uh, and we're the best at fighting in the world uh, with tanks and aircraft and battleships, but that's not how China fights. They fight with influence and economics and control over infrastructure and information. Uh, and so what that means is that they are in a, that we are in a very active war with China, we just aren't fighting in it. Uh, and while we do have ways of pressuring China and defending against some of the CCP's strategies, by and large, we're falling behind in a lot of ways. And China's Belt and Road Initiative is a perfect example of that, which I'll touch on in just a moment. But first, I'll point out here that this is kind of the nature of the American constitutional republic. Uh, it's such that we have a, a very hard time developing any sort of long-term strategy. At the absolute longest, we're able to plan for maybe four to eight years, whereas China's President Xi Jinping uh, on the other end, he knows that he'll be on office for a very long time. And so he's able to develop these long-term strategies, uh, which are also centralized, which gives him the ability to uh, control everything, to incorporate diplomacy and information uh, in the military and economics, and really the entire spectrum of a nation's capabilities to fight against the United States. And that's exactly what China's Belt and Road Initiative demonstrates. Uh, let me play a clip for you guys real quick. It's a few minutes long, but it does a really good job of explaining uh, the Belt and Road. There's a new highway in Pakistan and a new rail terminal in Kazakhstan. A seaport in Sri Lanka recently opened as well as this bridge in rural Laos. What's interesting is that they're all part of one country's project that spans three continents and touches over 60% of the world's population. If you connect the dots, it's not hard to see which country that is. This is China's Belt and Road Initiative, the most ambitious infrastructure project in modern history that's designed to reroute global trade. And it's how China plans to become the world's next superpower. It's 2013, and Chinese President Xi Jinping is giving a speech in Kazakhstan. 
where he mentions the ancient Silk Road, a network of trade routes that spread goods, ideas, and culture across Europe, the Middle East, and China as far back as 200 BC. He then says, We should take an innovative approach and jointly build an economic belt along the Silk Road. A month later, Xi is in Indonesia. Then two sides should work together to build up a new maritime road in the 21st century. These two phrases were the first mentions of Xi's legacy project, the multi-trillion dollar Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. They're also the two components of the plan. There's an overland economic belt of six corridors that serve as new routes to get goods in and out of China, like this railroad connecting China to London, and these gas pipelines from the Caspian Sea to China, and a high-speed train network in Southeast Asia. Then there's the Maritime Silk Road, a chain of seaports stretching from the South China Sea to Africa that also directs trade to and from China. The BRI also includes oil refineries, industrial parks, power plants, mines, and fiber optic networks, all designed to make it easier for the world to trade with China. So far, over 60 countries have reportedly signed agreements for these projects. And the list is growing because China promotes it as a win-win for everyone. Take, for example, the BRI's flagship project, Pakistan. Like many countries in Central and South Asia, Pakistan has a stagnant economy and a corruption problem. It wasn't a popular place for foreign investment, that is until China came along. In 2001, China offered to build a brand new port in the small fishing town of Gwadar. By 2018, the port, as well as a highway and railway networks, became a $62 billion corridor within the BRI. It's where the economic belt meets the Maritime Silk Road and it seemed to benefit both countries. Pakistan saw its highest GDP growth in eight years and forged a tight relationship with a major world power. China, on the other hand, secured a new alternative route for goods, especially oil and gas from the Middle East. Through projects like these, it also found a way to boost its economy. Chinese construction companies that had fewer opportunities within their own country saw a huge boost from BRI contracts. Seven out of the 10 biggest construction firms in the world are now Chinese. What tips the balance in China's favor even more is a requirement that it be involved in building these projects. In Pakistan, for example, Chinese workers have directly built projects like this highway here, and a Chinese firm has worked with locals on a railway here in Serbia. China's involvement is one of its very few demands, and that's set these deals apart so far. See, typically, to get investment from the West, countries have to meet strict ethical standards. But China's offered billions of dollars, mostly in loans, with far fewer conditions. So it's no surprise the BRI has been a big hit with the less democratic countries in the region. China has signed agreements with authoritarian governments, military regimes, and some of the most corrupt countries in the world. It's even affiliated with Afghanistan, Ukraine, Yemen, and Iraq, all currently splintered by conflict. Because of China's willingness to loan money to unreliable countries, many experts have called the BRI a risky plan. Eventually, these countries will have to pay China back, but corruption and conflict make that payback unlikely. A recent report found that many of the countries indebted to China are very vulnerable, including eight that are at high risk of being unable to pay. So why does China keep lending? Because there's more to the BRI than just economics. In Sri Lanka, China loaned about $1.5 billion for a new deep water port. It was a key stop on the Maritime Silk Road. 
By 2017, it was clear Sri Lanka couldn't pay back the loan, so instead they gave China control of the port as part of a 99-year lease. China also controls the strategic port in Pakistan, where it has a 40-year lease. It's pushing for a similar agreement in Myanmar, and it just opened an actual Chinese naval base in Djibouti. These are all signs of what's been called the String of Pearls theory. It predicts that China is trying to establish a string of naval bases in the Indian Ocean that will allow it to station ships and guard shipping routes that move through the region. So while China's not getting its money back, it's still achieving some very important strategic goals. China's growing influence challenges the status of the US, which has been the world's lone superpower for the last several decades. But isolation is trending in the US, meaning that they are investing less and therefore losing influence around the world. The BRI is China's way of leveraging power to become a global leader. By building relationships and taking control of global trade, China's well on its way. The narrator briefly touched on it in the video, but I'll highlight that China isn't doing this for the benefit of free international trade. They're not just trying to help out these impoverished countries. China is basically acting as an international loan shark. Poor countries don't have the infrastructure uh, to have things like 5G internet and cell phone towers, so China will build the infrastructure using Chinese labor workers who will then stay in that country once the project is finished. Uh, and then they'll charge insanely high interest rates to these countries. And when the poor country inevitably defaults on that loan, China will accept control of other critical infrastructure as a form of payment. So not only will they control the communications infrastructure that they just built, but they'll also take a seaport or an airport or mining operations as forms of payment. So over time, China is systematically gaining control of key infrastructure for trade around the world. Meanwhile, American companies are happy to continue partnering with the Chinese government to increase their markets. Uh, so not only is the United States actively losing relationships and access to a lot of key infrastructures, we're actually funding China's ability to do it. All right, so if China's ongoing war with the United States across all domains wasn't a big enough problem, let's talk about the ongoing effort to transition to a centralized global digital currency. So for your awareness, the G7, which is a political forum consisting of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States, they decided that they want to pursue a developing uh, a centralized global programmable digital currency. That's a mouthful. I'll get to it, what that means in just a sec. But uh, first, let me play you this announcement so you know that I'm not just completely making this up. This is 100% from uh, the G7 summit. Let me play it real quick. Today, I'm proud to say that under the UK's presidency, the group of the world's seven most advanced economies, the G7, is launching a set of public policy principles for retail central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. Central bank digital currencies could be a digital version of money, a bit like a digital banknote that could be used alongside physical notes and coins. Unlike most of the digital money people use daily today, it would be issued directly by a central bank, like the Bank of England in the UK. And governments and central banks across the world are working together, looking into what having a digital currency might mean in practice. Okay, so... What he is saying here is that the heads of these seven countries have agreed to develop a global digital currency. Think of this like Bitcoin, for example, but it's controlled by each country's central bank, which is then controlled by the International Monetary Fund or the IMF, which is basically the organization of 188 countries who sort of collectively agree to pursue economic growth. Now, there are lots of arguments against the existence of the IMF, but ultimately it serves as a way to globalize the world economy 
uh, and its root is meant to facilitate free trade. There are a lot of conspiracy rabbit holes I could go down here, uh, but instead I just want to focus on the facts. First, the G7 is openly stating that they want to establish an international form of digital currency. Like I said, think of that like an internationally recognized Bitcoin, basically. Now, I'm personally not a fan of this because banks and governments really like digital currency because they can track everywhere that the money goes. Uh, getting rid of physical currency makes it much easier for governments and banks to either make sure they tax you on any money that you have or just completely cut you off from your money uh, if they determine that is necessary for them. Uh, from a, just a pers perspective of, of liberty, I really don't like the idea of making all of our money uh, online because then when a bank or government disagrees with your beliefs, they can simply stop you from accessing your own money and seize it all, which, by the way, if you weren't aware, you do not own your money whenever you put it in a bank. You have basically given them that money with the expectation that you'll be allowed to pull it back out, but banks have a legal right to say no. So just for your awareness, if your money is in a bank, you don't actually own it. And so if there's any sort of economic collapse and bank runs start happening, uh, you can basically just say goodbye to all of your money. But uh, I dig digress. Back to the digital currency. Like I said, this is a problem because it's centralizing control of people's money. Uh, but what they didn't mention in this announcement, but did mention elsewhere, is they also want that currency to be programmable. Programmable means that uh, it could be designated for use for only certain things. More than just simply shutting down access to your account, they can actually program this digital currency to only be spent on what they deem is necessary. So an example of this would be, let's say the uh, G7 countries decide that they collectively want to move towards only using uh, vehicles that run off electric. They don't want to use any fossil fuel cars anymore. Well, if all of those countries are running off of a digital currency, a programmable digital currency, they can program that currency to only be used to buy cars that don't run off of fossil fuels, for example. Uh, so ultimately, elites across the world are centralizing control of banking and the international economy. Although a lot of these systems were originally created to create free trade, it's actually much more likely that this will limit free trade. All right, so while China is increasing its influence and its key control of infrastructure around the world, Western countries are centralizing banking and control of trade. Well, let's switch gears for just a second and talk about the American national debt. So the Heritage Foundation has done some great studies about the American national debt. I highly recommend you guys go check them out because it's one of the best sources that I've found for information on this topic. But in one of their slides, they classify our country as being what they call in a danger zone of crippling the world economy because our economy is verging on hyperinflation and all other international economies rely on the strength of the American dollar. But as our national debt continues to grow, we only further threaten the stability of both our own economy and the economies of every other Western country. Because of the political uh, incompetence of the people that we elected to office, by 2030, our nation will only be able to afford to spend money on four things, Social Security, Medicare, Obamacare, and interest on our national debt. Nothing else. By, 20 th by 2030, so that's in eight years, by 2030, those four programs will encompass 100% of the American GDP. We're already spending more than our GDP, but soon just those four programs will cost more than what we're bringing in. And by 2050, it's expected that we'll be spending over 200% of our GDP. So if you're China, you don't have to attack us economically, although they definitely are uh, and they're doing it on a daily basis, but they don't have to. All they really have to do is wait and we will cripple our own economy. 
politicians are too concerned with getting reelected to make any sort of substantial change to those four programs. And I'm telling you guys, they're going to cripple our nation within the next decade. Combine that with the trending support for modern monetary theory, which I've talked about before on this podcast. Uh, but modern monetary theory is basically the belief that a country's debt to earning ratio does not matter. Combine political support for MMT with our current national debt, with the hyperinflation that we've seen over the past few years, with the food shortage that our country is experiencing, and with a number of other uh, factors that I don't even have time to get into, all while allowing China in particular to exponentially expand their economic networks. Combine all of that, and I can assure you that we are much closer to an economic collapse than most Americans are even remotely aware of. After this episode, some of you guys listening are, are probably going to call me a conspiracy theorist, but I'm telling you, we have entered a new era, and senior politicians that we elected to office, they all know this, and they will willingly allow it to happen because when this all collapses, they will have no option but take some sort of authoritarian control. No country on this earth is, is stupid enough to attack the mainland United States in a conventional form of war, but other current countries are absolutely influencing our country and our society and our politicians to the point that we are on the verge of crippling our nation by ourselves. And the national debt is just simply an example of that. Now, I wanna to touch on inflation real quick as well because as bad as our national debt and government spending is, inflation is really what's going to kill our economy. I'm gonna play a video for you guys that does a, a better job than I can of explaining why we're seeing astronomical inflation rates right now. Check it out. If you draw a chart of the national debt of the United States, here is what it's going to look like. Okay, then 2021 happens, the pandemic, and our national debt is now off the chart, it's gone. Okay, so in the past year and a half, we added about $7 trillion to the national debt. From 2020 to 2021, we added $7 trillion to the national debt. We spent more money than has ever been seen by God or man. The idea was that the federal government was going to pay everybody to stay home. They were gonna pay them hundreds of dollars per week to stay home. That lasted all the way from March, 2020, all the way until September of 2021. These extended unemployment benefits, for example. What did this do? It told people, why don't you just stay home? People did. People who were working took the money and they pocketed it. By the end of the pandemic, People had more money in the bank, more wealth in the bank than they had at the beginning of the pandemic, while many of them were not working. We also suspended mortgages. We suspended rents. We did all of these things. We blew out the spending in extraordinary, extraordinary ways. We did all of this while producing no product. So we just, it was helicopter money. We just dropped money on millions and hundreds of millions of people while simultaneously putting small businesses out of business by telling people they couldn't go to a restaurant. They couldn't go to a small mom and pop store. You couldn't go to a big chain store because after all you had to shop, but you couldn't go to like a small mom and pop store. So all those places went out of business, but here's a check to compensate you for your trouble. So what are you doing? That's much more money chasing much less product. What does that do? That creates inflation. All right, so as Ben mentioned, the record inflation that we're seeing right now is a direct result of irresponsible government spending and even worse government policy. Honestly, it has gotten to such a ridiculous point that I find it very hard to believe that it's not intentional, but I'll stay away from that conspiracy rabbit hole for right now. Like I said, uh, this episode is meant to focus on just the facts and not all the, the possible conspiracies that could be going on out there. So regardless, inflation destroys economies. You guys have heard me say that time and time again. And while po politicians like Pete Buttigieg are fine with just telling you to go out and buy a $60,000 electric car since you can't afford gas this week, the reality for most Americans is that infl inflation is going to drastically affect their standard of living. 
On a more macro scale, it's more concerning because the world economy relies on the strength of the American dollar ever since we moved away from the gold standard. And if the American dollar hyperinflates, then world markets will lose that source of stability, which means stock markets crash, 401ks lose their value, and the United States basically collapses like I've been talking about. So how does all of this play out for the future of America? Well, the reason that I wanted to make this two-episode uh, uh, two episode series is because while the Ukrainian conflict is dominating head headlines right now, you will never hear about a lot of the things that I've talked about today on the news. But all of these issues are much more concerning to me for the stability and future of our nation than the conflict going on in Ukraine. Now, I could very well be wrong about that. I honestly did not think that Putin was going to do a full-scale invasion. My assumption was that he was going to uh, continue slowly progressing into Ukraine through their green little men strategy like he's been doing for a long time. But I was wrong and he invaded. So I could also be wrong about the US and European countries getting involved uh, in the conflict. But for right now, I'm gonna take the assumption that we're not gonna go into a massive land war inside of Ukraine. But what I'm trying to highlight to you guys is that Western economies are becoming more centralized and more interconnected. However, those relationships rely on the stability of the United States. Well, if the national debt and government spending and inflation continue on current trends, our country is likely going to see some form of economic collapse. And because of the centralized and interconnected nature of the international economy right now, that means that a lot of other Western countries will collapse as well. China, on the other hand, is strengthening its international position by gaining access and control to key infrastructure around the world. So if the American and Western countries collapse, that will leave China as the key driver of world economics, meaning that countries will not only rely on their control of infrastructure, but also on China's currency and banking and stock markets. This will essentially give China control of international trade at this point. And that's much more terrifying to me than a land war in Ukraine because a domino effect of economic collapse could actually drive large-scale war with China or with some of these other countries. And China is setting itself up to have control of the international economy on the backside of any sort of fallout. In my opinion, World War III actually started 70 years ago and the United States is losing. I'm sure a lot of you guys out there are probably thinking that I put my tinfoil hat on for this episode, but unfortunately everything I've mentioned is not just a conspiracy, it's true. Uh, these are real things going on right now in the real situation that we face as Americans. And honestly, it's pretty dim if you, like so many Americans out there, have put your faith in the idea of America as this great institution, as this perfect entity. Uh, if you've put your faith in politicians and the Constitution and systems made by man, then the collapse of the United States is probably pretty scary. Uh, and as some of you may know, I was never a very big fan of Donald Trump, and this is kind of one of the reasons why. Christians in America started putting their faith in Donald Trump like he was the savior of our nation, like he was the chosen one to turn our nation around. And just like anything that we put our faith in, he clearly uh, didn't solve all of our problems. But still today, Christians will continue to put their faith in politicians or our government as if it will save us from something. But the truth is, is that the United States will collapse. It might be 200 years or it might be in 10 years. Uh, but every nation falls and the United States is well on its way to following suit. And if you put your faith in this country, if you put your faith in anything made by man, I promise you, you will have nothing but disappointment. Instead, put your faith in God alone. At the end of the day, it does not matter if the United States collapses or not. You were put on this earth at this time in this country to serve God. And if you're spending more time talking about how bad Joe Biden is than you are talking about how good God is, then your faith is probably 
misplaced. God bless. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Millennial God Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave us a review. Uh, If you ever want to reach out, you can find us anywhere on social media. And you can also send us an email at millennialgodpodcast at protonmail.com. That's millennialgodpodcast at protonmail.com.